Hey everybody, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that lives with my writing, which you can find at Decide Nothing on Substack. The podcast has a life of its own as brothers and teachers, and the mission of the show is to connect with people, especially men, who embody positive presence and who have been teachers who I love and respect and who I want the world to get to know more deeply. Today, I'm speaking with Kim Stanley Robinson, a true legend of a writer, and also as an advocate for better stewardship of planet Earth and for sustainable cohabitation with all the species that inhabit this unique gem of a planet. Stan has published more than 20 books and has received great recognition for both his creative work, his advocacy, and although he's quick to qualify it as the work of a novelist, the fact is that he has made quite a mark with his science as well. Stan and I met through the Long Now Foundation here in San Francisco and reconnected through our mutual love of the High Sierra, in particular through the shared experience of independently coming across Paiute obsidian napping sites simply by following our intuition and looking for good places to rest while out hiking. As you listen, you might scan the questions at the bottom of the show notes, or just consider this. What is your relationship with the natural world? How does it feel to be in nature and to be part of nature? And how does that inform you in your daily life and as you look towards the future? If you like what you hear today, please do visit decidenothing.substack.com and subscribe to get updated whenever I publish new writing or podcast episodes. Anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book, Freedom at All Costs, when it comes out Didn't for just the cost of shipping. Stan, welcome to Brothers and Teachers. My pleasure, Bowen. Good to be with you. The mission of the podcast, aside from giving me something else to do besides writing and to help build an audience, is to bring myself and others into contact with people, and especially men, who embody positive presence. People who I want to learn from and that I want to get to know better and want others to get to know better. In your case in particular, as a writer, but also as a native Californian and a science fiction fan. I love how someone's qualities and values as a person come through in their creative work. That's what's driven me to become a writer here in my third career. Yours do, but yourself certainly comes through so much in your writing. So thank you again for being here. Yeah, my pleasure. And I think that's probably right. I would say that as a novelist, I've tried to stay behind the stage as some kind of a stage manager or telephone operator, just plug in the plugs, let people talk. But because I'm inventing the people, inevitably, you get a sense of the character of the person writing the novel. But it isn't a direct self-expression, which is one of the things that I love about it. I know that we're here today also to talk about my most recent book, The High Sierra, and that, of course, is a whole different thing. It's nonfiction. It has a bit of memoir in it. Never have I written about myself as much as I have in that book, and it was kind of uncomfortable, to tell you the truth. But in order to express the Sierra properly, I needed to tell my own story, and it would have been crazy not to, so I went ahead and dove in. 
I'd really felt that. And it was just a lovely surprise and serendipity to come across your book in the little Mono Lake bookshop there oh, yeah. in Lee Vining. I was just on my way back from a visit to the High Sierra. And uh, so it just made perfect sense. It was so striking to me, this relationship between these two very different worlds of hacking in, in the high Sierras of California and the futuristic fictional worlds that you write about. If they've read the High Sierra, I'm sure other readers can see the places and the scenes directly lifted from there. The fell fields and the Terminator, which reminds me of Rise, coming up over the High Sierras. How do those relate for you as a writer? I mean, it seems like you began to spend time in the mountains and became a writer around the same time. So how do you inhabit both of those worlds? Well, let me ponder that aloud. I grew up in Orange County, and it was a period of rapid change from agriculture and that it was orange groves, literally, when I was a kid, to the city, a portion of Los Angeles, suburban automotive. It was a dreadful uh, transformation of that landscape and quite shocking, although when you're young, it was just natural. I didn't register it much until I went to college at UC San Diego, and I discovered science fiction at that point. When I ran into it, it felt right to me. I think that my experience of seeing Orange County transform so quickly meant that when I ran into science fiction, that literature seemed more expressive of how things really felt than ordinary literature did, which now struck me as a kind of historical fiction, no matter what. So there I was as a science fiction writer, quite excited. At this point, I was maybe 20 years old, a sophomore in college, filled with big ideas and dreams. And at that same time, I started going to the Sierra, inspired by my friend Terry. We had been friends since junior high school. We went to college together to go body surfing. And then we were going to the mountains together. And what struck me, and this maybe took a few years, was that science fiction has a standing weakness in formal terms in that you know that it's made up. It's set in the year 3000. It's set in the future. It's maybe on another planet. And when you're reading, you know it's made up. And I eventually called this the cardboard set problem. And this comes from Star Trek. The bridge of the USS Enterprise was clearly a cardboard set. It's very clear that you're fascinated with the physical places and their huge characters at work. Yeah, but this was a conscious choice as a kind of an overcompensation for a structural weakness that is in science fiction itself. So seeing that that structural weakness, the reader, they know it's made up. The settings tend to be kind of shaky and one sense that this is more than a dream, that it's reality, which you yep. really want out of literature. That was weaker in science fiction, I felt. And I had experiences that were mostly, at that point, Sierra-based, that would allow me to say, okay, I'm on another planet. And for me, that became Mars, and the bodies in the solar system that NASA was revealing to us in the late 70s because of Voyager. There is something otherworldly about the high sierra in particular oh yeah at least to me there's some cheating involved like you have to terraform mars to make it look like the high sierra and of course the rocks are different etc but the american west with its redness and its bare rock aspect 
even more than the High Sierra proper, which is a kind of better zone than most of the American West. It looked Martian all over. And I had spent some time in the Navajo Reservation north of Flagstaff and seen what everyone sees as a Southern California, that right behind the coastal range, you've got a desert. So I thought, well, I can do Mars. And if I tell the story of terraforming Mars, the more it's terraformed, the more it looks like a place that I really know quite well. So that was a big driver. And I must say, this evolved over decades of work, but it became a habit. I see that the connection between the otherworldliness of the, the mountains and the American West leads me back to when did the seed arise in you of the idea of becoming a writer and the idea that you could. It begins, I think, by being a reader and loving reading and loving reading fiction. I've always read nonfiction, but in an instrumental way, I like to learn the information. It's not an aesthetic pleasure, but between novels and short stories and also poetry and also plays, theater and plays written down, these were all really important to me as a reader. And I went to college thinking, well, I've got to learn something useful. And I was thinking I would be a lawyer, but I started taking literature classes on the side and slowly but surely I realized this is really what I'm interested in. So I became a literature major instead without a good sense that I was going to do anything with it, to tell you the truth. It was a little bit of a scary thing. When I came near the end of my undergraduate career, I had no prospects and I had no sense of what to do next. So like a lot of people, I went to graduate school to put off the decision. Yeah. But from very young age, like maybe 12 or so, I started writing little short stories and I had good critical eye. I could see that my short stories were not good compared to the ones I was reading and loving. And I realized it's harder than it looks. <laughs> I would put things aside uh -huh. for years. And then I started writing poetry. And I would say poetry is a really great way in. Yeah. It makes you attentive to language, yes. to the sentence and to phrasing. And also you can do a poem and then you can revise it 20 times in many traditions. They're like one page long and you just keep on cycling it through till you have to give up. I was never a very good poet, but I was intense about it and it gave me a self-definition. And then running into science fiction as an undergraduate, the moment I began to try, I had an idea for a science fiction story. I wrote it. It was better than my younger efforts had been, distinctly better. I could see that myself as a reader. I thought, ah, oh, well, maybe it's just a matter of growing up. Maybe it's a matter of having ideas. God knows. I could never figure it out, but it was clear that I was better at it than I was when I was 12 when I began. And at this point, again, I was about 20. It was a lifelong urge that really only coalesced into something that other people would enjoy reading, possibly. And the test of that is whether an editor will buy it from you and publish it. And that happened relatively early for me. I was maybe 22, mm -hmm. and I sold a story to Damon Knight, who was my first teacher and editor and a lovely man and a kind of a mentor figure. In fact, you know how in the arts in the Renaissance, you had a patron. Yes. And really, Damon Knight was more of a patron than he was a customer or a client because he supported me in my yeah. mental life. He's the one who made me feel like, oh, I am a writer. I'm even a professional writer, although I was making, you know, hundreds of dollars per year. In other words, not enough. 
yeah. to keep going, but it was something that I could regard as my main thing. Yeah, thank you for that. You know, one of my writing teachers, Jack Grapes, out of Los Angeles, who's a really interesting cat and is a poet and certainly teaches that as part of his practice. And for me, it's the way to get direct access and exposure to and to work with a structure of language, like the geology of it, the shapes and feelings of the words and the different textures of language. I love it still. All my life as a novelist, actually in my notebooks, because for many years I wrote my novels by hand, on the backside of pages, occasionally a poem would strike me. I'd write it down. A lot of them are just forgotten in those notebooks. But when the pandemic hit, I got reacquainted with a fellow student from the first writing workshop I ever took at UC San Diego. And so the teacher was Donald Westling, who's retired, but he's still very active and quite a writer. And then this fellow student, Tom Marshall, is really a fine poet. And uh, the three of us began to exchange poems as a kind of a pandemic Buddhist mm -hmm. exercise of dailiness. Well, that was a lot of fun. And it's kind of got me back in the game again of paying attention. I think actually, if you're interested in writing poetry, then paying attention to the moments that might turn into a poem is one of the most important things you have to do. Once the notion occurs to you and you take it at an informal level, like a Buddhist meditation that isn't meant to last forever or isn't meant to be a perfect, how can I say it, an achieved poem like in the tradition of English and American literature, but just a notation, almost like a diary entry that is made into yeah. like a little vase. Well, at that point, it's just paying attention. And then quite often the ideas will come. You can see these artifacts of awareness in the high sierra there are many of them these little paintings these little vases they do strike me as just that and then i was able to see more of them sprinkled through other stuff of yours you have a real formal education in writing not only a master's but a doctorate as well how much of that formal training factored into your becoming a writer to come into play at all at this point in terms of how you think Oh, yeah. I never stopped being a student. And I want to make a distinction here, except for the occasional workshop like the one I mentioned. I was not a writing major. I was an English major. It was a scholarly pursuit. Although I've been involved with the Clarion Writing Workshop for most of my life, first as a student in 1975 and then helping it to run at UC San Diego since 2006, I don't think you can do much to teach writing of fiction. I don't believe in the MFA. I don't sure. believe in taking creative writing courses beyond one or two. Maybe to give yourself some sense to learn what writing workshops are all about, you can quickly get what they're about. You can strip mine them for their useful craft tips, which if you were to speak them all at once would take about a half an hour. Getting a two-year course in it is just an indulgence or it's a cash cow for the universities involved. And for the writers, it's maybe a chance to give them some time to write, but it does no good. It doesn't teach you much about what writing really is because what's teachable is brief and simplistic and too general to be of help when you're really faced with a scene or a sentence. And then on the other hand, it's not a good job, a credential. You say you've got an MFA, it's worthless unless you've published a lot. And so that has become increasingly true of a PhD in English as well. But I got the PhD in English and American literature, and I think it always has helped me because I know 
the tradition. I know the canon. I know what Daniel Defoe did when he was writing novels. And I've read a whole lot of great stuff that doesn't resemble what MFA programs now. I think that there's sharp blinkers put on the standard MFA courses even now that quote literary fiction is a very constrained and small-minded subset of what novels and literature can really do. And the more you know of the whole tradition, the more you're realizing that that is a tiny little island in a giant archipelago of greatness. I think one creative writing course in each lifetime is enough and more is a waste of your time. Yeah, I didn't study writing. I studied geography. And speaking of job prospects, didn't see that many prospects in that either. And so I went sideways from there into the software, essentially, because I was here in San Francisco and had grown up with computers and that sort of stuff. For me, studying writing has mostly been about forming community with other writers and seeing what it is to be a writer by way of other people who are doing it. This connection between geography and writing is so strong. For me, that comes together as wayfinding, being outdoors in the mountains, in particular off trail is the best possible practice or training that there is for wayfinding, literally, physically, on your feet, on the ground, in the terrain. That translates down into an ability and a confidence in finding one's way in the world. It also has helped me to find my way through my consciousness and my creativity and help my intuition to flourish. And so I wonder how this practice of all this wayfinding that you've done in the mountains plays into your life as a writer. Wayfinding and geography, the relationship between humans and the land that they live on. Well, this is a beautiful topic. Indeed, now it's becoming clear that whether you can make a profession out of it or not, it's one of the main projects we have in civilization today is to do better at geographical comprehension and expertise, you might say. Cross-country hiking in the Sierra I think of as a kind of a sport, a particular skill set that resembles other sports. It involves footwork like a soccer player, and then it involves comprehending a landscape to find the easiest or the best way to get from point A to point B. So like you say, it's wayfinding. It's something that you can get better at with practice. And it involves abstraction, map reading, and keeping in mind things that aren't right there for you to see, and judging the land that you can see, knowing that foreshortening is happening and that there are inevitable optical illusions. The better you get at it, the more fun it is. But it also takes a bit of stamina. That's why I call it a sport. It's a kind of a simple, slow-moving sport, and it doesn't have rules. You aren't competing against other people and nobody's keeping score. It's like body surfing in that respect, which we loved when we were kids. And I love a lot of sports, to tell you the truth. I like doing things like that. I'm not particularly good at any of them, but I enjoy a lot of them. And I'm just good enough to enjoy when things go well and then despair when things go poorly. I guess I would say this, that it's uh, this summer it'll be 50 years since i first went to the sierra and i've been going as much as i can every year since then which means i i calculate now that about 
two years of my life have been spent up there wandering around. And without a whole lot of goals, the main goal eventually became what I would call circumambulation, like Mm -hmm. the way Ginsberg and Snyder went around Mount Tamalpais as a Buddhist ritual, the circumambulation of a peak. Most of our backpacking trips have turned out to be something like that. Go out, Mm -hmm. do a big circle. Inevitably, you're going to circle some peak and get back to your car. So as a sport, it's kind of poorly defined, but it is immensely pleasurable to pursue. Yes, yes, absolutely. For me, the feeling of wayfinding, of successfully finding one's way and finding the right path, not that there's just one, but a path that feels good is something that so many of us struggle with in a larger sense in life, right? And outdoors, you can really feel that in such a concrete way. And that feeling is just one of the best feelings there is, you know, to feel like I wanted to get over there. It's not quite clear how to get there. I'm going to use what I know and what I can see, what I can imagine. That part of it that is being able to see over the mountain because you know enough about how these things work. And then you find yourself there and you're like, it feels good in the body. And I just think that that's so good for us as organisms, but also as conscious beings. It's a sport, a physical sport, but it's also an exercise of the imagination. Yeah. And it has an aesthetic quality to it. A clean line, I call it, that you took the route with the least amount of effort and most effectiveness. And I think it's very deep in the brain. I mean, it's obvious humans were intensely nomadic and often had a winter home and a summer home, and then always going over the next hill to see what was there and spreading across the surface of the earth in a process took most of 50,000 years, which is a pretty fast speed when it's foot speed and you're taking your whole life with you. It's very deep. It's a deep pleasure. What you said inspired me to remember that there's something creepy but provocative about being lost. And Mm -hmm. in this high Sierra, you're never macro lost. So I would say what happens is you get into basins that are so ripped by glaciers, the granite, that you're in a rock maze. And so you're locally lost, even with a topo right in hand, trying to get to out of that basin by the way of a cross-country pass. You can be locally lost. In fact, I'll tell a story. I guess it was two summers ago now. September of 2021, I was guiding a couple of friends who had not been up in the Sierras before over Bishop Pass into Doozy Basin, then over Knapsack Pass into Palisades Basin. These are trailless basins, at least Palisades Basin, that I know quite well. So right underneath the Palisades on effectively their south side, although you could also call it the west side. South and west side, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And God, what a beautiful basin. I'm trying to find a most beautiful campsite that I'd been to a couple few times before just to impress them with its prospects because it was like being on a plinth like a castle keep and you were looking around in all directions and there were the palisades just a mile away to the north and i couldn't find that same little plinth i was mystified but i was only a little bit uneasy because i thought i knew where i was so the next day i was leading them toward thunderbolt pass and getting increasingly uneasy but not sure why i didn't even feel like i was lost but i was uneasy 
And I should have known I was lost because I couldn't find that campsite. And yep. appeared over a ridge, a man in white. He was wearing like a French Foreign Legion white hat that covered most of his face. He was in white hiking gear with an almost white backpack, a beige. And he immediately headed towards us and I headed towards him. Yeah. And it was a guy from Tennessee who was hiking the Steve Roper High Route entirely by himself right. with a map and the guidebook of Steve Roper. Right. And he said to me, do you know where we are? And I said, yes, I know where we are. And he said, good, I need some help here. I'm trying to find Knapsack Pass. And I said to him, well, you're looking at it. We just came over it yesterday and I pointed up to it. And he said, but where are we in Palisades Basin? So I pointed to the map and I said to him, we're right here. And he goes, no, we're not. He said, I was right there a half an hour ago. And we were, I was pointing to a lakeshore and they're all unnamed lakes in Palisades Basin, or maybe it was one of the Barrett lakes. And it all suddenly came clear to me. I had spent the previous 12 hours thinking I knew where I was, but I was at the wrong lake. And they were isomorphic. They looked about the same, but they weren't the same. So then what had happened was the man in white, whose name was Tim, but I was so blown away, I never got his last name. He works in music in Nashville, and I hope that someday I meet him again. He thought he was in the wrong place, and he was in the right place. I thought I was in the right place, but I was in the wrong place. We clarified this for each other. And I, instead of leading my two friends up and over Isosceles Pass, which would have been a nightmare, I was reoriented, went to the spot that Tim told me about, and suddenly I knew where I was again with only about a 20-minute adjustment in hiking time. And off to Thunderbolt Pass we went. But I have been so amused at this lesson. There's expert overconfidence, and then there's just ordinary overconfidence. But this was a case of expert overconfidence on my part, and his was amateur underconfidence when he was actually mm -hmm. right where he's supposed to be. So it was a beautiful illustration of you can never really get the Sierras completely wired, no matter how much time you spend up there. I heard you say, though, that you had a feeling, you know, that you were off, although you didn't quite believe it in a way. You're right. Uh, yeah. 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 And to me, that's intuition. That's the subtle, you know, the subconscious speaking up, trying to say something and it can't say it perfectly clearly. And so often we don't pay enough attention. It's part of what I'm getting at talking about wayfinding. For me, this physical wayfinding on the ground has helped me to feel better at finding my way in a broader sense. Yeah, I think it's analogical. It's an analogy. I'm thinking of my own life, and I wrote about this somewhat in High Sierra. Sometimes you make errors, and you know that you've made an error in life. I'm thinking in my own case of I went to Boston for a PhD program, and I freaked out. It was the first winter of my life, and in climactic terms, it was traumatic to me. I thought, I can't live this way, and I bailed out, and I returned to San Diego after a single year in Boston. That was a mistake that haunted me for many years afterwards, and the thing is that even when you know you've made a mistake like that one, your wayfinding in your life course has, you've maybe explicably, but or inexplicably, you've made an error. It isn't all that simple to, you can't backtrack. 
uh, you can't go back right. to the point you made a mistake. Sometimes in the Sierras, you can go back to the place where you made a mistake, where you lost the trail, and you can try to find it again. You can repeat. In life, you're kind of stuck with, okay, onward and upward. I'm going to have to forge on here despite knowing that yeah. I made a kind of a stupid error, a rookie error, or a fearful error. And then you just have to forge on. And this is something I wrote about in my Galileo book. Very often experience teaches you stuff that is no longer relevant, that it would have been useful to know it when you could have put it to use. And now you've learned the lesson, but it's a thing of the past. Uh, yeah, I remember reading that bit about your retreating from Boston. And uh, yeah, sometimes we do make mistakes. In my case, I can usually trace those back to ignoring my intuition. Not paying attention to some sign that was fairly apparent. I want to talk about risks just a little bit. You wrote about this in the high Sierra, and I've heard you talk about it. It seems early on in life you got this idea that danger or risk is kind of decadent, is the word that you've used. And then you explain in the high Sierra, saying that you've come to not completely write it off. It's just not you. You didn't feel the need to seek risk in the outdoors in the way that a lot of people, myself included, have felt the need to take more danger, more risk, more extreme situations. In my case, for example, with paragliding, flying in the mountains. Wow. Um, yeah. The top of your head comes off and stays off. I've since stopped doing it. You know, I kind of had my time flying and I had enough of that. Uh, it was just such a heightened state that I decided I really didn't need it anymore. I know for a lot of people, seeking that risk is a compensation for some earlier trauma, need to get out of their heads, get away from something early on. When I was talking to Chris Ryan about this the other day, I, he's kind of the same way. And I said, maybe you suffer from a lack of trauma. <laughs> well, that, you know, that's one way of putting it. It's a very personal thing, and, and it could be just a matter of a risk assessment and being easily scared so that the risk is not felt as a stimulant. Uh, people who like it, one thing for sure, I've seen this in myself and in others, is that whilst you are at risk, you are paying attention. You are in the moment. So if one of the points of meditation and of Buddhist practice is to stay in the moment, well, if you're hanging on a rock wall, then you are in that moment and you're not going to be thinking about tomorrow or yesterday. You are forced to be. So that is attractive to certain people. I've never felt it. It's too intense for me, the fear factor. But I, it was writing High Sierra where I suddenly put it together, which is ridiculous because it's as obvious as can be. A good childhood friend died of leukemia, and I spent a lot of time with him in his last few months. We were 15 years old. So I'm watching this guy, and he's watching me, and we were 15. We were not articulate. We never talked about it. But on his <clears throat> face, I could see a certain expression. I'm going to die. You're going to live. It was a kind of a hunger. I repressed that. That was way too much to take on. And I don't think I properly processed his death for about between, say, 1966 or whenever it was, I to the point where I don't even know the year, 66 or 67 or 68. And then the Winter Olympics where Dan Jansen fell because his sister had died of leukemia. The skater he made. Yeah, the yeah. speed skater. Yeah. And it was, so that's about, oh. a, that's about a 20-year gap. 
in between right. for me and when I felt it. So uh, this isn't unusual. Proust talks about this, the intermittencies of the heart. And literature is by far the best psychological inquiry that we've got, I think, because mm-hmm. it doesn't try to generalize and make generalizations about people that goes to specific cases. And yet the generalizations are still there, for sure, in Proust. This judgment of climbers, which was intense in me until I got over it, uh-huh. where I was thinking they were choosing to do yeah. dangerous things. And that's where I was thinking, this is decadent. This is jaded. They can't get off on anything less than a life-threatening situation, this seems to me to be a blunted sensibility. Because I can get off at looking at a sunset or looking at a piece of granite. Why can't you, why would you need to take risks to, to get a thrill? Like an inability to appreciate the subtle. Yes, but all that was wrong. That was me misinterpreting the, first of all, everybody's different and comes to these things with different motivations. And secondly, there's a lot of behaviors that we're not choosing that are subconscious driven things. And a lot of climbers, they're just driven to it. It's like, it's more than their religion. It's their nature. If I, you know what I mean, or maybe not, I'm trying to say that it's so ingrained in their personality that to judge them for it is very inappropriate. Yeah. And in (laughs) fact, inappropriate analogies, while I'm trending in that direction anyway, if you were to judge somebody for their sexual preferences, this would be clearly inappropriate. And we know that more now than ever before. So that's as intimate as it gets. If somebody also has a set of habits, desires, things that they like that you might not like, that's their business. So I had to educate myself by paying attention. Why these strong feelings? Why this judgmental quality? And, you know, to a certain extent, we're always judging ourselves and we're judging other people. And a novelist is always doing, making micro judgments. The stories have morals, characters say or do things. You're making judgments all the time. So I'm not saying that it's impossible to be non-judgmental, but you can be a little more discriminating and a little more generous in your sense of judgment. Sure, sure. Yeah. I'm aware part of my drive towards more, these more extreme sports has been out of a need to compensate for some earlier traumas and in a more forceful way, like force myself to get to that state of awareness and attention. It just it wasn't enough for me to just kind of sit quietly or I don't want to say just, but to walk in the mountains. I needed something else to kind of do it to me more forcefully. And like I said, in some of those cases along the way, I've gotten my fill of those things. I felt, okay, now I don't need to do that all the time. I don't need to keep doing that. And that feels good to have had that realization and to have moved past some of those extreme states. I I have climber friends who are older than me. They're still climbing. They're 75. I don't know how they do it physically, but mentally the thrill is still there for them. And they're obviously the longer you live as a climber, the more confident you can be that you climb safely and that objective dangers exist, but they are low probability. And you've got the subjective dangers in hand. And it's something that you like to do. And now I have much more generosity towards that impulse. And I like these climber friends a lot. I have a practice that I'll share that has taught me some things. Temple Grandin makes this point that our brain 
is conserved and everything that evolution has run us through is still there in the brain so that in very simple terms, we've got a lizard brain at the bottom running autonomous functions and then a mammal brain in the middle, the temporal lobes that we've been, we are mammals still and mammals all along. And then the human part, the last couple million years in the prefrontal cortex. The emotional centers are clustered in the mammal brain we're feeling creatures very substantially with human thoughts and language on top of that and to turn into a dog. And so my friend Neil and I, we go to a local park that has a Frisbee golf course on it. And we take our Frisbees and we run the course. The crucial thing is to run the course because golf is a finicky and somewhat stupid sport. It's too (laughs) meticulous. But with Frisbees, you can, we have more control and we have less care as to scores. We run the course, and during that hour, we have turned into dogs, and you know what I mean. A park, a dog is chasing a Frisbee, it leaps in the air, grabs a Frisbee, it runs back to its person, and then they keep playing that game together. That dog is in the present, Yeah, and you can return to that part of your brain. It takes a little practice, and I think this is part of what Buddhist practice is, is to practice getting out of past and future and just being in the moment. And that's experienced as a blessing and doing it as a kind of a devotional practice. So it's funny that sport, I mean, I've loved it since I was a kid and partly it might be Mm. because of that mammal aspect that it gets you back in your body and into the present that you're focused on the sport, whatever it may be. Body surfing was definitely like that. Now, yes. I'm following this train of thought. Walking in the mountains is not quite like that. Walking in the mountains can be thoughtful. You can be lost in your past. You can be thinking about the future. It isn't as point-centered as some of these more focused and extreme sports or something repetitive like the Frisbee running where you turn into a dog. In the mountains, I think you're still fully, all three parts of the brain are fully pumping. And there's a lot of time where I'm lost in thought to the point where, oh, I didn't see that last mile of forest or I was thinking about something else. Right, right. Well, I think I hear that and I love your description of being a dog and both that and the experience of being in the mountains and climbing, for example, or believe me, flying paragliders in the mountains. Those are all, to me, get to the spiritual nature of sport. And something that's often not talked about or lost in our conception of sport as just the physical doing of it, but the access to other states of mind and to these different levels or parts of our brain and the different ways of being and that awareness, that's something that sport is hugely powerful for. I mean, that's part of the reason I love all of the sports that I've practiced over the years and partly for the physicality, but very much also for the states of being. Yeah, the two are so closely, you can divide them up linguistically and it makes sense too. But the two in your, in actual experience, they melt together into a oneness that is really, and I worry about the younger generation in the way that old people tend to. Has the computers, the internet and screens, has that created a massive loss 
they talk about nature deficit syndrome, and I believe in that. But I also wonder about physicality deficit syndrome of being Absolutely. lost in screens and in ideas. It would be a big loss. It will be yes. bad for your health eventually. And oh, yeah. Some, Maybe we're seeing some of that, but also uh, humans are flexible and they'll come around. I think it might be a problem of some being something new in history and new and interesting. And then people realize it's not that interesting and maybe they'll pass back into the larger world. You never can tell. And everybody's going to be different on that. We are embodied creatures. That's the thing. And going into the future, of course, there's lots of people that just can't wait to get to the disembodied future because that feels like freedom and immortality. And that's an interesting idea, but I love being in my body. And one of the things that has come up experientially for me in the last several years is this feeling of energetic connected to sexual feeling that has come up in nature. It's a feeling of energetic connected, very much in the body. And you could also just say that it kind of turns me on sometimes. Just being out in such beautiful, powerful places and being so much in my body. And this is a bit of a theme. I'm starting to see more people talk about something we'll call it eco-sexuality or an energetic intimacy with the world. And I think it does get to this hunger for embodiment and this direct connection that you were just talking about. Has this ever come up for you? It's an energetic connection. It's not just in the legs. It's in that second chakra. It's in the balls and in the sexual realm. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Being in the mountains is a total experience. And so yeah. it's mind, body, and it's all the body. There's a feeling of wholeness and completion, but also an interaction. You can feel that you're an animal. And so there's an erotic charge mm. when things are going well, when you're, if you're not in pain, right. because that can happen too. And that's a strange state of mind if you have to hike in pain, which sometimes happens. But mm -hmm. on the normal state, it's a total body thing that has an erotic component very quickly as a American suburban man up there in the wilderness you think of mother goddess of the world which is the tibetan name for everest mother nature the sense that you're in a relationship with a place that is nicely amorphous and undirected a kind of a surround state rather than a specific interaction so it gets generalized across the board and i would say it feels good to be up there in a way that's pretty total. I don't think of it as specifically sexual, but erotic. And all of these words, they cut a little too finely. The feelings are broader and bigger than the words allow typically. Yeah. I'll say this, I love to be up there. When I wrote The High Sierra and I put the subtitle, which my editor instantly said is a good idea, a love story. Well, there's multiple love stories in that book that make it very appropriate as a subtitle. But one of the main ones is a feeling that, now, how can you love a landscape? The, that oh, but we can, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But a lot of people, when they love a landscape, it's their home. And that you understand completely. It's where you live. It's a place that you've nurtured and that's nurtured you. It makes sense. When you go out into wild places where you are really a visitor, 
and you are trekking across them. And a landscape that if you were forced to live off of it, you'd be in big trouble, mm-hmm. especially in the winters. Well, loving that, that's a little bit peculiar, it's a little mysterious to have that intense of a feeling. And it might be aesthetics. It might be that mm-hmm. something that it looks beautiful. It doesn't always look nurturing, especially when you get into the higher rocky areas. It looks absolutely alien and inhuman. And to love the inhuman, this is strange. And I think it's worth exploring. And I want to drop back to something that you were saying before. This notion, it's very common in science fiction. They talk about their bodies as their meat packages and that souls or spirits or minds unfortunately bonded to a meat package. This is a sign of deep alienation from self, self division. And also it's a lie. We're never gonna download our brains into computers. We don't understand brains enough and computers aren't good enough to do what the brains do. And brains are embodied. In fact, they're a a strange form of jelly inside a body. It all works as one. It's like what you said, this is a dream of transcendence. It's like, I wish I could go to heaven. I wish I could be an angel. And yep. then what would you do with your days? You'd play your harp on a cloud. I mean, it's all very amorphous, this drive to immortality or to transcendence, to being more than human or being just a mind. It's a replacement for religious ideas. And it might be a fear of mortality that, okay, you've only got 90 years or 100 yeah. years. Very often in my science fiction, I say, oh, no, you'll get 250 years, which would be great, but you'd still come to an end. Yeah. Uh, this endedness, this bound quality to our selfhood, a lot of people struggle against that and say, oh, I'd rather be immortal, but you're not going to be. So the, a certain form of escapism or a lack of acceptance and this is another reason why I like Buddhism as a way of thinking. To speak of Buddhism, because it's grounded in acceptance, is that what you're saying? Yes, that it doesn't have an afterlife. I mean, there are forms of Buddhism where they talk about reincarnation, but basically it's always saying, look, we're mortal creatures, we are animals. Pay attention to the yeah, moment that you're in. Yeah, right, right, right. That brings it back to this love of landscape and Wild places, and certainly for me, that embodied experience of spending time outdoors and active in my body has helped me come to feel a kind of a love for everything, not just people or women or certain places or times or whatever, but for the world on a broader scale. And like you said, it's a total experience. There is an erotic charge and an activation to that. You know, ask a dog, right? I mean, they feel it for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I have to say, like when I was younger in particular, there was a dualism going on. If I was in a wild place, I was free, I was happy. And then you'd have to drive back down into Uh civilization. And oftentimes it was like a return to hell. In fact, we used to stop at a Burger King in order to immediately profane ourselves by doing the stupidest thing possible. Okay, we're back. Let's plug in. Let's not think too hard about what we've just left behind because, you know, 80% of our time, 90% of our time was going to be caught in this stupid post-war American reality that you and I grew up in. Right, Uh, right. Stuck in traffic. Yeah, you got to free yourself (laughs) from that somehow. And so 
it, it was a good thing for me. Luckily, my home life, my life in civilization became very benign. That's another part of the love story of the High Sierra. My wife, Lisa, and I just celebrated our 40th anniversary. So between that and bringing up children, doing the thing of ordinary suburban life, which I would have laughed at when I was in my early 20s saying, I'm never going to do that. And I more or less reproduced my parents' life in Southern California. In a way, it feels ridiculous. In a way, it's been profoundly sustaining and fun. Uh, I've been lucky. And at that point, going to the Sierra is, is no longer an escape to freedom and beauty and the wild and the incredible blessing that we have these wild lands that we are allowed to go up into, which is a, a, a privilege and a blessing. To have the two sides more or less in balance has been a growing thing for me. It's actually quite old at this point, but mm-hmm. when it first hit me that I was going to be just as fine at home as I was up in the wild, that was a major realization. I feel you there, yeah, and I think that's part of what I'm getting at with my own experience with certain sports and having made the choice to give these things over because I don't need to escape in that way anymore and yeah i'm not just okay but very happy and at home yeah yeah with less extreme stimulation there's the uh, one last question here that comes to mind and it goes off to this question of immortality or really just human nature i was reading a bit of for the future over these past several days and i've often been struck myself with the fact that we managed to create so much beauty And yet also that we're doing our best to kill ourselves and to kill the world along with it. Your writing about the future is very much an optimistic projection that will continue to create beautiful things. So why do you think that we're caught in this between creating beauty and trying to destroy ourselves? Are we just not smart enough yet? Is there some point of evolution of consciousness that we'll get to where we'll get past this destructive nature? Or is that something that will just part of humanity forever? Well, it's a good question. And I have been thinking about it a lot. It's part of being a utopian science fiction writer. Once you say a utopian science fiction writer, you're committed to viewing the positive potentialities that we could make a better world, therefore we should make a better world, a social world. I mean, we should make a human society worldwide that is in a great balance with the biosphere that is our ultimate sustaining support system and also really our extended body, like you said before. It's our collective embodiment. Yes, it's our extended body. And it's like we're cutting off our feet in order to make hang glider wings. It's not a smart thing we've done now. But on the other hand, a lot of that happened by accident. So I would say science itself as a project, you try to understand the world, you try to get more control over it, you try to create more comfort, more pleasure. You do these things out of positive motivations. You don't want suffering. You would like to have better medicine. You'd like to have longer lives, healthier lives. You'd like to have more opportunities. You'd like to see the world which is a very profound pleasure. And so all these things developed industrial civilization out of the best of motives, but then side effects, like the obvious one, the CO2 burn, the release of 
fossil fuels into the atmosphere, and now we're going to cook the planet and cause a mass extinction event. We were just following a branch on the tree. Yes. You know, by starting to use oil to power our civilization, we saved the whales who were being killed to use their oil. And so at first, oil was a great blessing for the whales, for instance. They would be extinct without these Pennsylvania oil fields leaking oil and the burning of coal, etc. So then the side effects hit or the negative effects of doing good things hit. And sometimes, like now, they can be overwhelming and all of the good that we've done can collapse under the side effects of the bad. Now, at that point, you do have a choice to make, and it's a moral choice. You can say, well, let's get out of this situation. Let's continue to improve. Let's invent and institute and pay for clean tech, and we can do it. And because we can do it, we should do it, and all will be well. And we will develop a steady state, a permaculture. Names for it are all over the place. You know what I mean. But there's a certain dark streak of stubbornness to admit that you were wrong and to get caught up in a mindset of, if I have to change or else the world is wrecked, then the world is going to be wrecked and I am not going to change. So there's a narcissism. There's a narcissistic response that in ministry, I talk about this as the Gertrude Damerung. Um, The last scene in Wagner where the gods, if they're going to go down, they're taking the world with them. So this is an interesting thing for us to talk about as privileged Californian, older white men, because it's a patriarchy thing. It's a capitalist thing. We've led relatively privileged lives despite our scrambles being in the precariat. I think what you're getting at is like being privileged enough to not feel the need to have to change. Right. We're not used to having to change. We're not used to having to give things up. No, and we've been, if you look at all of human history, we are in the aristocracy for sure. Of of world history, we are in that top of 5% in terms of privilege and comfort and security, all these things. So a certain number of, and I'm not saying it's entirely confined to men, but it is a kind of a testosterone slash patriarchal, stubbornness of like, I'm right. I'm never going to change. If you ask me to change, you're insulting me. And I'd rather see the world go to hell than change my privileged ways. And this, I would say, is a big portion of the Republican Party. I mean, if you have that attitude, you gravitate towards the more right-wing part of the Republican Party. And I don't want to characterize all of them because there are so many good, decent Republicans, or there were in this country, that it would be overly partisan to just tag an entire half of the country's population and also the other half being men as opposed to women. All these things are very, very mixed and I don't want to overgeneralize, but the Gertrude Damerung response is mentally ill. It hurts your own children and it's a thing that has to be fought and it's one name for the political battle that we're in is to convince enough people that the health of the planet is the health of your own body. Yes, I love that. So we've just come around to what could be a whole other conversation about masculinity and the nature of identity. One of the things that you brought in, you know, in High Sierra, I think you were talking about your relationship with Gary Snyder and about how he taught you about this idea of resistance 
of moving in masculinity from a dominance to resistance. I agree very much that that's the juncture that we're at as men, certainly in broad terms in this age, that it's our choice to move past where we've been and to resist it. Yeah, I'd like to talk about Gary a little bit because he's been so important to me. And I talk about this in the High Sierra book, so I'll paraphrase it a little bit, that say you want to be an American male writer, and it's 1965, 1968, the role models out there, Jack Kerouac at at the Outsider, and then all of the New York famous ones as the insiders in American culture... They were they were really shitty to the women in their lives, and it was standard operating procedure. So there was a lot of alcohol, there was a lot of abusive women, and this was okay because it was, you were a great writer, you could get away with that, and you would still be a great writer even though you were doing these shitty things to the people in your life. And there were, if you're looking around for role models, it was a kind of a a barren landscape for role models that I felt attracted to. And then there was Gary Snyder, which he popped into my view at the same time as the mountains and Buddhism and LSD and writing poetry. And there's Gary Snyder. And he's like coming back from Japan and he's saying, no, I'm a family man. I want to buy some land. I want to stay on it forever. It's marijuana rather than alcohol. It's being a hippie and a Buddhist rather than a Christian and and a power tripper of the East Coast male writer variety. These shoddy stories of personal excess and pain for other people while you are the genius writer that they inhabited America's imaginary as to what a writer should be like a horrible uh, power trip. And so Gary, when I understood what he was up to, and it came with all the rest of the things that were happening to me when I was young, talk about wayfinding. He was like the guy up on the pass Mm -hmm. going, you know, if you come this way, it's really beautiful over here. It's a much better trip than getting on the freeway and driving down to New York and being on TV. Come up this direction. You're going to have more fun. Well, it blew my mind and it changed my life. And it was only much, much later that I actually met Gary in person and was happy to see oh, really? that he's just as rock solid as you might imagine. There is no artifice in him. He's a scholar and a gentleman and a sweet, super smart poet living a California life that you could admire. And so I've had a much more suburban existence, much more conventional existence than he has, but he's been a guiding light for me, an exemplary figure. That's great to hear. That's part of the reason that I'm doing this as just part of my life and my practice is to expose myself to better examples back on the question of giving things up and not being in the habit of having to give things up or to surrender what can seem to some like such hard-won gains. Are we ever going to get past this human dilemma of destruction and creation and learn to give up some of what we think of as our power? We're in such a climate emergency right now that everything is in kind of crisis mode, and that'll be true for the rest of our lives. And it's going to be a mixed picture. I've been trying to encourage people by emphasizing that there are going to be a lot of losses and a lot of defeats, like my story of the American Revolution, which goes lose, 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 win. It's important not to freak out because the news will be frequently of defeats and losses. But the undercurrent of the larger 
longer story. Hopefully it will have that bend in its arc towards justice that Martin Luther King talked about. And all you can do is do your own part and try to encourage people. We are both part of the larger kingdom of San Francisco. And as a cultural capital of the world, San Francisco is something to be proud of. It's really the cultural capital of California, and it's a world site. It's physically beautiful, landscape beautiful, and culturally beautiful. And this has to do with diversity, with acceptance of previously unaccepted versions of sexuality and gender. You can be like me, the most ordinary, straight, suburban guy, just as boring a life as you could possibly imagine and still benefit from being part of San Francisco culture. And what the young people there have taught me, because they mostly were younger than me by the time I began to live here and get educated by them, what I've learned from them is so encouraging. So it's like a scene into the future a few decades. And I trust that the rest of the world will be changing in the same way because it's just more sustainable ecologically, but also in human terms. We're lucky just to have lived here, speaking of bringing it back to landscape. Yeah. That whole California experience is way more than the beautiful hills and valleys and mountains. It has to do with the people that came here and what they made. And so all props and kudos to San Francisco culture and all the people that have made it. I think as a provincial, like I live in the provinces of San Francisco, because Davis is utterly boring little college town, but because we go down to the capital of our province, we have an exciting center to our lives and a place where you can feel that history might turn out okay, because just in the last 70 years, San Francisco has changed the world. And so yes, maybe that will continue. Yeah, I heard you mention your love of San Francisco. I just listened to your talk that you did with City Arts and Lectures. And as a native San Franciscan, I'm very proud of this place. And I think it comes back to geography. You know, yeah. it's it's a beautiful place and it's a very stimulating, activating place. There's lots to look at. There's lots to explore on foot and otherwise. Yeah, you it's know, human scale. Yeah, yeah, it's human scale, which scale. matters a lot, that you can see yeah. the extent of it in all sides when you're on one of the hills. Now, you're right. In, in geographical terms, it's a blessed place, and the people have done right by it, more or less, usually, yeah. <laughs> with yeah. the obvious struggles and exceptions. It's been a comfort. Since Davis is kind of like a Midwestern college town, I've got the small college town benefits, and I've got San Francisco benefits within an hour. We're lucky men. That's a good way to end it, I think. Absolutely. Yes, it's a great place to be. It's part of the wealth that we've inherited of the place. Stan, what a pleasure to speak with you. It's really been fascinating. And coming across your High Sierra book, it's just a real joy to read. and brought me back to reconnect with your work and then to you as a person. Well, thank you. And I've been enjoying reading your columns. I'm enjoying your writing. Keep it up. Thank Power you so on. Much. And hopefully we'll meet in person down in San Francisco one of these days. I look forward to that. Thanks again so much for your time and for your work. Right on. I'll be interested to hear how things go. Enjoy the rain. Yeah, I will. You too. See you, Bon.
Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please have a look at the questions that I've posted at the bottom of the show notes and consider commenting with your own thoughts on what we discussed in the episode. I'd love to hear from you. You can subscribe, recommend, share, and comment all right at the bottom of the page at decidenothing.substack.com, where all of my writing and audio lives, or in your favorite podcast app. Just a reminder that anyone who becomes a paid subscriber to my Substack will be eligible to receive a copy of my book when it comes out for just the cost of shipping. And, of course, you can always reach me by email or find me on social media. Thanks again for being here, and I hope you tune in again soon.